Hey, I'm Tegan. And I'm Eric. This is the Professional Weaver Podcast, where each week we have discussions with weavers and the supply chain that supports us with hopes to build depth, transparency, and connection within the hand weaving community. This week's episode was sponsored by Comfort Cloth Weaving, a company specializing in heirloom quality handwoven products for the home, as well as yardage for the fashion and accessories industries and value-added products for farmers and wool growers. Find out more at comfortclothweaving.com. We would like to thank Susan, Chichilia, and Richard, as well as Caitlin, for being patrons of the podcast. If you would like to support the podcast, go to proweaverpod.com slash support to make a one-time or monthly support contribution. Have questions about weaving? Send them to hello at proweaverpod.com, and we will have many episodes dedicated to answering those questions with our podcast guests. This week, we speak with David Jagger and Susan Mills from Jagger Spun Yarns in Springvale, Maine. Jagger Spun Yarns has been a staple in many weavers' yarn stashes for many years. Their bright, saturated colors and worsted wool yarn makes for beautiful suiting, wearables, and home goods that will last for years. I find the drape of the cloth produced to be light, but weighted just enough, and comes together for a nice hand. Though they have restructured in the last year, they are still going strong selling to fiber artists, knitters, crocheters, and weavers. My favorite yarn is their Heathered 218s. It adds such a level of depth in the finished cloth. We hope you enjoy our conversation as we talk about why and how the business was restructured, the differences in woolen and worsted yarns, and learn about the changes in the global textile economy. We started with a brief history of the Jagger family and their mill. Sure. Uh, I'll, uh, I'll start. Probably the best way to start is, is uh, the family history, which uh, I'll, I'll try to do this fast. But uh, in the mid-19th century, my great-grandfather was a spinner in Bradford, England. Bradford then, and for a long time, was a textile center as uh, the Industrial Revolution. Um, his name was uh, Uriah Bearstow. And uh, in Sanford, where we're located, there was a guy named Tom Goodall, who uh, was building a textile firm. It was a fully vertically integrated woolen and worsted system, employed 3,500 people at its peak. They went out of business in 54. But anyway, he wrote to my great-grandfather in 1884 and uh, offered him a job in Springville, Maine, uh, if he would come and oversee the construction of a worsted system spinning mill and then be in that day, they called them mill superintendents. Today, we call them plant manager. Mm-hmm. So he uh, decided to do that, take him up. And uh, he and his wife and three kids shipped out of Liverpool in 1884. And uh, the only way we found out his real name was that uh, we couldn't find a Jagger. But I always knew him as a Jagger. And so a friend of mine who's a kind of an expert genealogist uh, said, well, I'll take a crack at it. And she she looked at all the ship's manifests leaving Liverpool in 1884. There weren't that many. And she went down and she looked at, and the first name and the birth dates all matched up. And he changed his name from Uriah Bairstow to Uriah Bairstow Jagger. And the whole family changed all the names. And, you know, I'm, I'm 
been in his family for a while, and I didn't have any knowledge of this whatsoever. So I was kind of like, felt like somebody done something sneaky. <laughs> uh, but anyway, and we don't know why he did that. We suspect, well, we don't know. We suspect that at one time, I know, uh, England had a policy of trying to keep people from leaving the country if they had knowledge of textile manufacturing. We think that's the reason. Other than that, we think he was an upstanding citizen. That's our story, and we're sticking with it. <laughs> All right, that's a good story. So he came to he came to Sanford Springville, and um, his two sons went to work in the mills, and um, his two sons were Sam and Fred. Fred worked uh, for a career in the mills, retiring in 1940, roughly. Uh, Sam worked until 1898. He started. He and his brother started this company in 1898 as a partnership, and they rented place on uh, on the Muslim River, and it had water power, and it was a small building, and they they had some machines, I guess, and uh, they made yarn. Moved a couple of times. They ended up in South Sanford, where they built a plant in 1906. And it was there until 1956. And uh, my father and his two brothers were at that point running the company. And they they moved into the building we have now in uh, 1956. And that's where we've been. Uh, we were, uh, we've always been a worsted system. And I, I imagine you know the difference between worsted and woolen. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, if not, I can go into it. Yeah. You know yeah. Yeah. Why don't you tell us so yeah. that we can all be on the same page? Uh-oh. Uh, well, yeah, uh, basically, um, fibers for the worsted system, you have to have really around three inches in length. And in the case of wool, it's uh, shorn, it's scoured, meaning washed, and that's where the grease and the dirt is removed. And it's carded, and it's co mechanically combed. And when it's combed, we call it combed top, T-O-P. Mm -hmm. When it's combed into top, the short fibers are removed, and th those are called noils or noilage. And what you end up with, you end up with long fibers, relatively long fibers, all pretty much parallel, and the short fibers removed. And that's a worsted. In the woolen system, they can use fibers shorter, say around two inches, roughly 2.2, and the fiber is, uh, again, shorn, scoured. It's carded, and off the card, uh, they form roving and from the, about the size of your finger. Mm -hmm. And from the roving on a spinning frame, you can spin that into yarn. Okay. Um, the advantage for worsted are that uh, with longer fibers, you have fewer what we call points, fewer ends. And because they're long and they're parallel, they're less likely to pill from abrasion. Okay. And they're, more, they're better for um, abrasion resistance, so they're great in socks, they're great in suiting, upholstery, um, that sort of thing. The advantage of the woolen system is that um, because the fibers are all sort of entangled, mm -hmm. if you get inside of woolen spun yarn and look around, you know, there's not any rhyme or reason except there is an overarching torquing that you might observe from the twist. But the advantage to a woolen system yarn is it has better loft. It's bouncy. It'll bloom more. It'll bloom more. Yeah, oh, okay. Good way of expressing it. Yeah. Um, I like to, I like to, I, when customers, commercial customers that would talk to me about it, I always say, well, the big advantage is they can buy our waste fibers. <laughs> which they did. Because <laughs> our waste fibers would flip out in the air and we'd, you know. So anyway, that's sort of a snide, that's kind of a snide compliment, you know. Yeah. <laughs> 
cool. So as a, as a manufacturing company, we've uh, been around a long time. Um, people in this community ask me why I shut down the manufacturing part of the company, mm-hmm. which was a year ago last March. And the best way to express it, and when I get into textiles and who exists and who doesn't, you know, people get kind of their eyes glazed over because they don't know the industry or the way that I used to know it. Mm-hmm. I met a guy uh, years and years ago in uh, state capital, Augusta, who's a, he was a uh, PhD economist kind of guy working for the state planning office. I, I can't even remember his name, but I remember his story. And I said, well, what do you do? And he said, I study things. Huh. So what are you studying? And so I'm studying the potato industry in northern Maine as well. I, I know all about that. I see in the paper, it goes down like 2 or 3% every year in terms of production, sales, acreage, earnings. He said, well, yeah, that's true, but that's not the real point. What's the real point? He said, well, you know, every industry has a critical mass. In the case of potato farming, if you don't have the number of farms and the acreage and the production to support a John Deere deal with the spare parts and the skills, the skills to repair your equipment, if you can't bring in a crop duster because you don't have enough, and there are other, and he had about a half a dozen little trades and businesses that are critical to having a, a functioning potato a farming region. Mm-hmm. He said, what happens then is it doesn't go down 2 or 3%. It collapses mm-hmm. into almost nothing. There'll be, there'll be survivors who are, some will be hobby, hobby farmers. Some of them are just stubborn and don't want to give up, you know. Yeah. Well, that's basically what's happened in the textile industry. Um, Today, there are no top dyers in the United States. That's the, if we want to dye top, different colors, we can blend it to make a heather. We have to have that done, and we're using a firm in the United Kingdom. There's no one left in the United States. There's one combing mill left in the United States in Santee River, South Carolina. Uh, Burlington Industries has a little capacity for dyeing and combing, but they, what they use internally, they don't do anything on the outside. Um, there are very few spinners uh, in terms of the unique products we made when we ran. Um, I don't know if anybody else will do that. There's one worsted spinner in Pickens, South Carolina, and different business model. and co- Yeah, it's similar equipment, but don't really do what we did in terms of blends. So what we found is that uh, over time, the industry collapsed. And I really could not see a future for what I had. And by way, you know, just by way of perspective, the plant we have still exists, but it was sized as modern equipment, mm-hmm. but it was sized to make about 2 million pounds a year in a year. And we wow. would do that having about 1,500 production lots. So a lot of variety. It wasn't just, you know, stick it up and run one thing. Mm-hmm. We made a lot of different things. We made coarse spun lycra products, Ooh. yarns with yarns with slubs, uh, all kinds of stuff. Uh, yarns with unusual blends. Well, we did wool silk, and nobody else in North America would do wool silk. Right. Um, but back in the seventies and eighties and nineties, we were doing two million pounds a year. We took a big hit when when part of the uh, our customer base. And these are all commercial companies. Mm-hmm. Went out of business mm-hmm. around 1990, 95, 2000. We went from 2 million pounds to about 
600,000 pounds. And Whoa. that was a very difficult transition as a company to do that and to survive doing it. Mm-hmm. And then in the past six or eight years, we went from that level to about 300,000 pounds. Okay. And then in uh, December, our largest customer that was 30% of sales who uh, was in the craft hair and business, but uh, basically came to us and said, you know, no hard feelings, but we're going to buy everything offshore. We're not going to mm-hmm. use you, you know, in the future. So have a nice, have a nice time. And I couldn't make it work. Um, Greg Fall, who was our sales manager, uh, came to me and said, initially he said, gee, I think, I think there's a need for somebody who can do backwinding from skeins onto cones and maybe take yarn from cones onto skeins and basically packaging, repackaging. And uh, I said, well, you know, if, if, if you want to give it a shot, I'm happy. I'll do anything I can to help you. And later on, he, he said, I think I could, I, I think with some of the niche specialties that uh, he said, I can make a go of it much smaller than you. We had 39 employees. I think he has seven. Okay. And so he exists and he's in our plant. He's running space and um, he's he, making yarn. He makes all the Jagger spun yarn. He it's makes still all the j- made as it always was. Yeah. Same people, same employees, same equipment. Uh, and uh, I, I wish him well. It's not an easy, it's not an easy task. The guy works like a dog. Yeah. But uh, that's really the, the history. It's not a happy tale. Well, it is a happy tale because we're still here. We're still That's here. Right. Yeah. So That's Jagger right. Spun is the retail wholesale. And so the mill makes the yarn. We buy the yarn from the mill or and we sell it to weavers, knitters, crocheters, yarn stores, uh, both wholesale and retail. Yeah. Cool. Wow. Jagger Spun, you know, you know, there's a one of the outline you said, I uh, the, the, the question I dreaded, I thought a lot about this, but I dreaded that question. What's the worst mistake you made? <laughs> I've been around a long time. I've made a lot of mistakes. <laughs> and I told Susan, I said, there's so many, it's hard to choose. <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. We... <laughs> having said that, it wasn't a horrible mistake, but uh, way back, I can't remember when, but uh, I remember at, at that time, I used to stay up fairly late watching TV, and I don't anymore, but mm-hmm. there was this ad on TV. This guy had a hand-flat knitting machine. I think it was uh, a brother machine, I think. Mm-hmm. And he's making yarns like crazy, you know. And I thought, oh, this is neat. And it was so simple. And so I, I bought one because I wanted to understand it. And then I figured it out that the ideal yarn for that machine was like a 212s or 214s. Mm-hmm. It would be like around 3,500 yards per pound mm-hmm. in, in the kind of language you speak. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so I thought, I can see every every person in the United States are hand knits. So they're going to go out and buy one of these machines. And they're going to be so disappointed they can't run hand any worsted on it because it's too heavy. Right. But I make, that's, that's, the machi- that's the yarn I make for commercial accounts. So I'll just take some of the cones that I make for them because they like to buy it on cones and I'll start a new business. So that's where Jaggerspun, uh, that was the genesis of Jaggerspun. Of course, as you know, not many people bought those machines. Right. And the idea did not take off. And uh, so over time and over years, we kind of morphed into hand knitting worsted. We got involved in weaving as well. Right. Most yarns. of our customers, I'd say, are on the wholesale side, are either yarn shops for knitting, crocheting, weaving, or small weaving operations. Um, 
weavers, knitters, comer, uh, you know, production knitters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so what's it been like designing yarns for those smaller production people, like for the knitters and weavers? What's it been like kind of developing a yarn line for them versus the commercial line that you would use for the flatbed knitting machine? Well, that's a... Uh, one example is that uh, Wigwam Mills, who's still in existence in Sheboygan, Wisconsin, you might remember the brand, a uh, big outfit at one time. Okay. Anyway, made socks. Made socks. Thank oh, you. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Everybody knows that. But anyway, um, the uh, president of Wigwam uh, and I used to get together at least once a year, oftentimes more often, oftentimes on the phone. And uh, he was one of our really good customers and uh, he called me one time he said see you know he said i i would love to make a ski sock for downhill skiing and he said you know he said the big fancy thing in europe is a hundred percent silk socks for downhill skiing because they're really sheer they're easy going to boot easily and so on he said i don't want silk but he said could you possibly make something like a wool silk and i said well you know, let's check that out. So we came up with a 50-50 blend, uh, and it was a single 18s, uh, Worcester Count. Do you guys know Worcester Count? I, that's that's the two 18s you're talking about? That's the Worcester? Yeah. yeah. Well, we were making single eight, single 18s for them, and then Fox River Mills adopted it. Thorla Running Sox did. So we oh. made a little single 18s, and then at some point, uh, with Jagger Spine, I said, by the way, we got this thing. We do. We got a product flow. And I said, well, it's way too fine for us. I said, how about two ply? So that's how we got the two ply. And we mm. stain dyed it in a range of colors. Nice. And there are a number of weavers use it. I know a number that's of That's probably too. our best selling yarn is the wool silk 218s. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's big with the weavers. Yeah, I've seen it come through a lot in scars and things in our uh, show and tell at the Guild. Yeah, lots of um, a nice shine to it, a, a really nice drape. Yeah. And mm-hmm. it's a good, good weight to weave. Yeah. The silk is very strong, so it's almost like spending a wool nylon for strength. If you ever try to break it, it's a strong yarn. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The, the, the thing about hand weavers, uh, perhaps you could help us understand it. Yeah. Um, in the commercial weaving market, um, you know, power looms, uh, typically they wanted um, a lot more twist than we would use for a knitting yarn. Mm-hmm. Mm. An example, in a 220s, that'd be, a single, that'd be like a 5,600 yards per pound. Yeah. Finer than probably you're used to dealing with. Yeah. But uh, our standard twist factor for our knitting would be a nine by f- nine turns in the single and four in the two ply. Okay. And I remember selling a lot of people with power looms and they say well we need 11 by 7 to get the strength because you don't have the hand and it's not mm-hmm. not the same loftiness but uh hand hand weaving i have the impression that you don't need quite as much strength would i be correct yeah you don't need quite as much strength because you on a hand loom you can't quite get that high tension and it's also not going as much abrasion as it would in a power loom because they're going so fast and yeah yep so with the hand weaving you can really be more flexible so you can use more of a knitting type yarn i've 
I've had great success weaving with your main line. Oh, good. Yes. That's a knitting twist. Yeah, that's a knitting twist. Yeah. So I've had really great luck with beautiful fabric that came out of it. And it's that's why I love using it is because it comes together so well. Mm. And it just fulls up really nicely. Even though it doesn't quite have the bloom as the woolen yarn, I actually prefer the worsted because I like the smoother finish. I like that it comes together more. And I use a lot of utilitarian things. So I make blankets and towels and curtains. And so the pilling factor is really important. Yeah, the wear is important. Yeah. Mm. The other great advantage to the woolen system, I didn't, I didn't mention this, but cost. Typically yeah. cost is because they use shorter fibers. And that can be less than a year's growth on a sheet. Can be like a half, you know. Right. And uh, also, there's just less processing. Combing takes a lot of money. Mm. Yeah, mm. a lot of time. A lot of time. Yeah. So, where do you source your wool? Well, in the United States, um, th- there's one uh, combing mill. It's a um, subsidiary of a French company called Chagère. Mm-hmm. And so, if it's combed top, it's come from there. And there, there used to be a dealer network in the United States, but that no longer exists because there's not an industry. Mm-hmm. And um, some domestic wool and Chargier does comb some Australian. I know mm-hmm. um, a lot of domestic wools and what we call ter- Are you familiar with the difference between domestic and territory styles by any chance? No. no. It's a 19th century thing that's stuck. And, uh, at one time, kind of east of the Mississippi, wools, they'd call them domestics, and they're different breeds, and typically they're kind of like barnyard breeds, and the wool will be somewhat more yellow, and um, it would be typical, it would have more vegetable matter because of the environment the sheep live in. Mm-hmm. The territories would be the, those areas that, that used to be territories like Wyoming wool, Montana, Texas, oh. Colorado. So when somebody starts throwing around the term territory wolves, they're talking about the wolves coming from that region of the United States. Uh, we uh, use a fair amount of uh, a medium wool from uh, Chile, from an area called Punta Arenas. Punta Arenas is a port. and um, There's a combing mill there, right? There is a small combing mill there, and we buy that through Chagere. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. Um, it's become, it always was an international business, but for us, it's, it's uh, truly an international business today. Yeah. Mm. And, uh, we have some wolves come out of Europe. Italy, UK. Yeah. So, hmm, I'm wondering what would, so some of the things that we would need to kind of boost the industry up would kind of develop another, like, charges like another place to develop comb top then so we could kind of maybe pull in more wool from the territory areas or even better process the wool from the domestic areas is kind of what I'm taking from this is that we need to develop a comb top mill. (laughs) Worldwide, there's been an enormous contraction of capacity to comb wool worldwide Hmm. because And I'm not going to make this a political commentary at all, but a factual one. The Chinese, mainland Chinese government, uh, 
put up five huge combing mills, huge. And for a couple or three years, they then priced their services to comb wool at zero. So you could buy greasy wool in Australia, right? Mm -hmm. Or you could buy the same greasy wool comb, scoured and combed in China for the same price. And that effectively put a lot of companies out of business. A lot of combing mills. A lot of combing mills in Europe, particularly out of business. And it's a, it's a, a classic a strategy of a couple centuries ago, mercantilism. Okay. In which you, you use commercial activity as a means, uh, as, a, as an aggressive, competitive part of your national, nationalistic policy. That's really the reason why uh, there's not much combing around. The here and there, plant here, plant there. Um, when did that happen? In the 90s? I'm, um, we became aware of it probably 2015. I'm okay. going to say something like that. That era. Interesting. But honestly, as, as companies were dropping, I said, what's going on here? And uh, people said, well, you know, because this is the way it's priced. So it's a fact of life. Mm. Yeah. I didn't I hadn't even really thought about that because we have we have a local spinning mill to us that we do a lot of work with and so I'm used to that more localized economy conversation. Mm. Yeah. And, and in combing, um, I don't know what the minimums are now for Chargier to comb, but I, I know one time they used to talk about twenty thousand pound locks and that sort of thing. Wow. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm sure they're down from that, but it's yeah. still the nature of the process is one I want you you got to have a lot of stuff to process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. That's a lot. A grade. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, interesting. So, since since now we're pulling in wool from internationally, you said that you now work with an international dye house for Jaggerspun? Yes. Okay. And we, we have a dye house in, in Philadelphia. That's that's where we dye all our yarn right now. Yeah. Uh, there was a dye house in Maine that went out of business a couple of years ago. And that was really convenient. That was great to have the dye house right here. Um, but, you know, unfortunately, they're gone. So right. now we have to ship yarn to Pennsylvania to get yeah. it dyed. That's okay. a stain dyed yarn that's all spun. Oh, okay. If we, okay. If we want fiber dyed in the form of top, like for our uh, heathers, mm-hmm. heathers consists of colors blended together. Then we have to have the top dyed in uh, Bradford, the UK. In the UK. Okay. So how much how much of your product would say is skein dyed versus top dyed? Um, it's uh, about half and half. But probably a little bit more is skein dyed. Okay. Uh, the main line is skein dyed. The zephyr wool silk is skein dyed. Our heathers are really popular, and that's all um, blended from primary colors dyed in the UK um, and then spun here. Our biggest superwash line, the Mouse and Falls line, that's um, top dyed. Okay. Solid top and heather top that we spin here. Cool. Oh, that's so interesting. I didn't know that because I remember I remember when you guys were just switching dye houses. I had like a very small wholesale order with you and you were like, oh, this color's out, but we're it should be in soon. We're just waiting for the dyer to confirm it. And it was I hadn't even thought about having the I always thought you did it all in the top. So yeah. it's really it's really cool to hear that you also do skein dyeing, too. 
Mm. Yeah. Well, you get more loftiness with stain dyeing because it's not um, under tension. Okay. Yeah. And um, I like our top dyed yarns. I love our heathers that, yeah. you know, because there's such depth of color with the primaries all blended. Um, yeah. I just think they add something to the finished product when you get That's the heathers cool. in there. Yeah. <laughs> I think it adds a little bit more to it, too. I've done a few um, blankets for friends of mine for weddings, and I always use the heathered yarn for mm. it, just because it adds a little bit of that homespun feel, more of that earthiness, more history to it. But that's just my personal take on and it. I feel like we have more control over the colors, too. If we're blending the colors here before we spin it, we have more control over... Sometimes we send stuff to the dye house and it it doesn't come back quite how you know, we wanted it. <laughs> right. um, with lab dips and all that, sometimes it's just not exactly what you, you know, envision. Yeah. So it gives us a little more control, too, when we make top-dyed yarns. That's cool. Yeah. We um, do... Uh, dyeing both in skein before we weave and then also we use shibori techniques and we dye after and i'm always just a little bit nervous when we do shibori <laughs> there's just not going to come out the right color or the right you know shade or you know something will be wrong with it but always, um, start, always start with a pastel and go darker yes. <laughs> yes. yeah you can always re-dye it color. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> I agree a hundred percent with that, but it's also, it's been a good, um, experience in sort of letting whatever happens happen for us. I mean, we're on, you know, much smaller consequences than you, but you know, much smaller scale. Cause it's just, you know, two of us doing this in our house. Um, but it's been an interesting sort of experience figuring out how to sort of roll with what happens as opposed to what you expect to happen <laughs> right yeah. right and even with you know like i said lab dips and all we kind of hold our breath when a shipment comes from the dye house and we take a look at it because sometimes it's not quite you know and we're talking you know a hundred pounds at a time kind of thing Ooh. so it's a lot of yarn to be a little <laughs> bit off yeah so. <laughs> yeah and i have to say i've had um i actually i have a rug that I'm so bummed about right now on the loom. It's been on the loom for about a month, maybe a little more now. And, um, I just, I, I had bought a color, uh, and then I used it up. I used a lot more than I expected I would use. And I used that color up and then I ordered more and it was from a different dye lot. And it's like just off enough Yeah. that it's not, you know, it's not perfect. So I have to like, just finish this rug and it'll go in my bathroom or something. <laughs> But I noticed that um, you have lots of undyed yarn. Uh, there, you have a whole section section of um, undyed natural yarns. Do you yep. find that you sell a lot of those to people like us who want to dye our own colors, or is that? We do. We do have. We do. We have a couple of, um, or the mill, I should say, has a couple of um, bigger customers that are indie dyers that you know, buy the undyed yarn to do their thing on. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I've been feeling like we're getting more and more people dying, wanting to dye their own yarn. Yeah. Yeah. I think we see that too. I, there's a lot of weavers that we know, younger weavers uh, that are getting going or, you know, mid career 
and a lot of people are dying their own yarn. I think it's a way sort of for us to set ourselves apart from the other people who are out there doing the same thing we're doing because there's only ultimately so many things you can make on a loom, right? right? You're essentially making a flat sheet of fabric and you have to figure out a way to make it unique. And I think that dyeing is sort of coming to the forefront of that where a lot of weavers are either working with dyers and natural dyers or like uh, just people who will dye a bunch for them or they're working on their own learning how to dye and making it a part of the a more holistic process that they can just totally do on their own. I feel like there's so much more and better information about like how to dye yourself, especially mm. with natural dyes. There's so many good books that have come out recently about how to use natural dyes and how to experiment with that and yeah. you know, really make it your own, like you said. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's funny, I we got a um, really cool natural dye book about a year ago. We bought somebody's studio out and all of their books came with it. And we're comparing, um, like the new dye book, the new natural dye books with the old natural dye books. And it it really is incredible. Like the, if you can get through the technicality of the old dye books, you can get a lot of really good information that you can then like use with the techniques in the new dye books, because those techniques just didn't exist, you know, way back when all these old hardcover, manuals were written in a much more technical sense where right. they're dying like giant bats of it and stuff like that well and now they'll give you like real formulas how to do mm. it step by step in the new and the old dye books it's like you know gather some walnuts and add some of this and yeah. here you go you know there's not a lot of detail a little bit a little bit of magic potion right bark and bugs yes <laughs> yep yep that's cool so, Susan, Susan got some uh, Kool-Aid colors that we have. We have a little yarn store. And, we have uh, a little mill store we just opened right before um, COVID hit, uh, unfortunately. We had one day of business and then shut down. Oh, man. <laughs> so we, we reopened again in June, and we have a lot of undyed um, yarns in there for people to buy. And so I Kool-Aid dyed some yarn just to display and show how the color cool. comes out. That's awesome. It's just an easy, quick way to die. Yeah. Yeah. The, we're working on a little workshop um, that got sort of canceled, sort of not canceled, that we're going to do Oh, sorry. Uh, this year, this later this fall, um, all about like natural dyeing at home and how to shibori dye and stuff like that. Oh, great. Yeah. yeah. So before COVID, this is always talking about how how you run your business it's always predate bc uh, yeah bc bc BC. before covid yeah (laughs) um so before covid how did you kind of promote and share about jagger spun did you go to shows did you go to events how is that kind of business side of it to get yarn into the designer's hands into knitters and weavers hands well, <laughs> I, I, I just a quick uh, way back when mm-hmm. uh, we had a we hired a guy to create a website for us a long time ago. It was early on. And um, he said, oh, by the way, so I'll, I'll make this uh, search engine optimized. I said, what's that? 
I mean, literally, I mean, I had no idea what he was talking about. He said, no, no, people will search for things and you'll, your name will pop up if I do it in a certain way. I said, well, I'll go ahead and do it. We had, so this is back quite a while, we had uh, some initial success in doing that. Uh, Susan has participated in some uh, like craft shows and that sort of thing. Well, I signed up. I had eight on the calendar for this year and we did one in early March and the rest have all been canceled. Yeah. So, yep. That happened to us know. too. <laughs> right. So we're just, you know, taking it day by day and seeing, you know, when things will uh, open up again for that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, you know, we have our little mill store. We're making appointments and we're open one day a week at the mill store and limiting the number of people that come through the door and, you know, being really careful over there. Um, but yeah, sort of all the plans are out the window that we have for this year. Mm. Yeah, I know. We hear you. We've yeah. been. Uh, well, we, yeah, I mean, we we went to one show. We went to uh, American Craft Show in Baltimore and then we came home and then we were getting ready to leave for Atlanta. And pretty much every show, at, including Atlanta and after, got canceled for us for the rest right. of the year. Right. So that gives you time to do a podcast, though. That's yeah. Really, yeah. We're, <laughs> you know, the, one of the really good things, I think, about being so small and just the two of us is that when something like this happens, we can just be like, well, we can stop. You know, we don't need to spend 12 hours a day on the loom because we're not going to be doing the same kind of production. So let's, you know, put our energy somewhere else. And mm. this was kind of where it landed. Yeah. We, we have, uh, we've used print media off and on. Mm. And honestly, I, I can't tell you what the return on that investment was, but I don't think it was adequate. Okay. Uh, I, I'm not sure. We're doing an ad in uh, Down East. Uh, this fall to just sort of a test, but uh, we have not had good luck with that as a way of promoting the business. Okay. Jagger's Fun in the past hadn't done like craft fairs and the country not, not fairs much. and that sort of thing. Not and much. so I was really anxious. I came on board last September and I was really anxious to get that going and get, yeah. get out there and get the yarn into the hands of the people who use it. Mm. Um, but, you know, as we said, coronavirus had other ideas. So. We, yeah. we sell yarn to uh, a lot of textile schools, RISD oh, and so on. Yeah, on a lot of textile colleges of order from us. And okay. I think that some of the designers that come from that background know us. Yeah. Because they do projects. That yeah, that, I mean, that's how I learned about you guys. I would find, I collect old weaving magazines and old, like, weaving yeah. catalogs. And I would always see your ads come up. And I was like, oh, well, I wonder if they're still around. And... Lo and behold, you were still here. And I was like, yes, quality yarn. <laughs> yeah, it's been really interesting with our um, mill store once we got back opened again that we've had people like people from down the street saying, you know, I knit like crazy. I weave all the time and I had no idea you people were here. So it's oh, been really, really great to get out there. That's mm. awesome. So, yeah, that's interesting. So because... Because you've restructured and you're now a little bit smaller, are you able to do custom runs for customers? Or is that still something that you reserve? Custom runs as such. Uh, Greg, his, his company is called Worsted Spinning New England. Okay. And he is what we call him in the trade, we call him a commission spinner, meaning the customer would buy the fiber, buy the wool, and 
he could probably advise on terms of yarn count, that sort of thing. But he will spin it to their specifications. He'll spin it to their specs. Okay, cool. And he would do, you know, I, as a commercial spinning operation, I, my, my minimum at the time was 2,000 pounds. Mm-hmm. For R&D, for a customer, I'd do 100 or 200, you know, but you can't make money with those pounds. You just can't. Right. There's so much, the setup and the run out of, uh, well, you got a lot of eight different sequential machines, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, so you, you do get into, I think Greg was 500 pounds. Am I right? Yeah, he'd probably go lower than that. But probably, yeah. So, it, yeah, it's a little bit confusing. The mill still spins all our yarns, but they are under separate management. Yeah. And we depend on the mill to get all our yarns spun and put up into cones and hanks. And they depend on us to give them the business to do all that for them. Right. So it's mm-hmm. really, we work really closely together. Yeah, that's a really, it's a really good relationship that's developed so that you can still continue making the Jagger spun yarns because right. they we are so them, great. They need us. So yeah. yeah. Well, and we as weavers and knitters and crocheters all appreciate it as well. I mean, there's no, I mean, it's hard to find somebody in the U.S. spinning consistent uh, quality that you could, you know, call up and order a ton of for a big project that you've got going. You know, it's, it's often difficult to do that. And to be honest, that was one of the reasons that we ultimately um, started buying only uh natural colored materials was because we couldn't always guarantee that we would have be able to order you know 120 pounds of something right so that we could complete a project and if we had a little leftover that we didn't use last time we could throw that in with whatever we could get and then we could dye it and maybe come up only two yards short as opposed to like 10 yards short there aren't many places that you like you said you could buy 50 pounds of wool in a certain color right i mean you go to yarn stores or yarn fests or wool festivals or whatever mm-hmm. and it's sometimes hard to even get a sweater's worth of yarn never mind you know to weave yardage or you know do a big project with yeah 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 and when we're looking at production stuff you know tegan just finished uh 30 yards for a clothing company and you know we can't do those projects if we don't have some place to get 30 yards worth of material right so we depend on you know little companies like you guys chugging along and you know making our job even possible basically what is some of the best piece of advice that you've ever received and it could be about running a business it could be about fiber it could just be life Mm. but what kind of advice would you like to share i'll uh I'll give you a textile answer. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that, that, that question brings up a lot of thoughts. But um, back in the, and this is not something that you can use for the future. This is sort of like uh, a specific circumstance of the textile industry. Mm-hmm. Back in the 70s, we were doing a lot of yarn for sweater manufacturers. It was about three-fourths of our sales. And that was a big business in the United States. And um, also it was a time in which there were... Um, number of vertically integrated woolen mills in new england there must have been i'm going to say a dozen big ones and in the 70s they were they were going out of business and uh there was one guy 
who uh, had a family business in Guilford, Maine. His name was King Cummings. And um, he sort of was a larger-than-life figure because um, a company brought a business. He'd borrow money and he'd buy it. You know, he's a, he wanted to get bigger. He's taken on a lot of debt, and he was. It became a pretty good size operation. And um, then, because of uh, just it was a bad season, he was making fabric for women's wear, mm-hmm. and uh, they just had a bad season. That it happens, and he had to declare Chapter Eleven. And I never met the guy. But I knew of him, you know, he'd, he'd done some really interesting things in the state of Maine as a citizen, too, that I admired. So anyway, I got a call and you know, somebody just told me he's coming out of Chapter 11. He's going to be producing. So I get a call because he's a woolen system guy. And he introduced himself and I said, oh, it's so nice to meet you. And he said, um, I remember he, he wanted 100% nylon single sixes, and he said, you have a, and he mentioned a specific machine. He said, I think you have one of those. And I said, yeah, yeah, I do. How do you know that? How do you know that? But anyway, he said, yeah, I'll, I'll give you a quote. He said, well, just telling you up front that if this works, I'll buy my own equipment. I said, I won't buy yarn from you. And I said, no, I'm, I'm not offended. I'll take an order. And uh, I said, so how's it going like you? These open-ended questions. How's it going? What do you say? What do you say to a guy who's just been through the meat grinder? Right. right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, imagine what his life was like. He said, "Well, I made a fatal mistake." I said, "What was that?" He said, "I thought if I just got bigger, I'd be stronger." He said, "That's not really the case." He said, "I should have been focusing on my customer base, not the market, but my customers. What are the forces that are going to affect my customer base?" It will be good or bad for me. And he said, you know, all this women's wear fabric going into the cutters up, they used to call it the cutter up trade. That mm-hmm. actually was a proper English at that time. He said, cut and sew, they're all dead meat. They just don't know it yet. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, nobody has figured out a way to automate cut and sew. You folks know how cut and sew works, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? You pattern, you sew it up. He said, Anything which is cut and sew, and I'm thinking sweaters, uh, anything that's cut and sew is uh, probably going to have a really hard time in the future because there are low-wage countries, and we are in competition with them. It's just a matter of time. I said, so what are you going to do? He said, well, he said, there's a new concept in offices that uh, they no longer, when they build a building, they no longer take orders in advance and create petitions and walls and everything to your specs. They just create great big open floors. And they buy things called cubicles. And um, he says, it's uh, Herman Miller, Hayworth Designs, Steelcase. And there was another small company. So they dominate the market. He said, I'm going to do that. And he said, I'm going to make fabric covering for office petitions. He said, and I'm going to dominate that business. And uh, he did. He stopped He stopped trying to sell to garment manufacturers. And But the really interesting thing was that he was coming from a business in which every year was a new ball game. You know, women's wear. All the colors change. All the right. fabric designs change. And nobody wants the same thing they had last year. And he had actually a library of hundreds and hundreds of fabrics that they made in the past. Wow. And they knew how to make them. Mm-hmm. And he had a staff of designers. So when he went into Hayworth, Herman Miller, 
when he went into an outfit like that with his team, he was competing against companies, textile companies that basically were used to creating a fabric and pounding it out year after year after year. Mm-hmm. And he just blew them away. And they had the biggest market share in that in that industry. And he passed away quite a while ago now, but an enormous success. And I, and I at the time, I, I hung up the phone. I said, I think he's onto something. I said, what should I be doing? You know, because I kind of kind of see what the handwriting is on the wall. And this guy's kind of confirmed it. Uh, in my case, I looked for products that had a very small amount of labor. And mm-hmm. it turned out that uh, men's socks, socks in particular, had because if you see a sock machine, it knits a sock. There's that mm-hmm. cuts it off. That's another one. Yeah. Well, one There's no cotton sew. So uh, I changed the business in terms of it was easy for me because the sales reps were all my father's generation and they were all dying or retiring. So it was easy for me to populate that group with people who knew the sock market, people mm-hmm. who were there, knew the customer base. And so we changed it. And they, it took a decade really to make the change. And we had a really good run in the uh, second half of the 80s and 90s and until I'd say 2005 or thereabouts. But that was uh, really key advice for me as a business. Mm. That's Think awesome. of your customers. Yeah. That, that'd be... <laughs> Think beyond your customers. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, I like that too because it's like pick something and do it really well and do only that thing. Be well, really good at that thing. Yeah, do it better than anyone else. He, yep. he, he, he was just a force. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They still exist. I think oh. it's, under, uh, it's under a different name. I think it's bought and sold a few times. They're still in Guilford, Maine. They're still doing the same thing. That's, that's awesome. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's awesome. I, I love the idea. And I think that's too part of where, like, the idea for this podcast came is, like, if we can, there's there's enough work out there for lots of weavers. And if we're all really good at the thing that we do, there's lots of niches for us to fill. And mm-hmm. if we can sort of bring all of us up, I feel like you know, we're only better for it because we can all have our own little thing. We can all do that thing really well. And then people will end up like thinking more about like, I wonder if I can keep this project local and then going out hunting down some weavers as opposed to maybe just like finding a mill somewhere in India where it's super cheap to get a bunch of fabric made. I have to tell you the other end of the story. Um, because uh, it really affected me. Yeah. Uh, when King Cummings, fam- when his business went through Chapter 11, he owed the, uh, we called it the Boston Wool Trade. There were dealers on Summer Street in Boston, which is now, I think, obliterated by the Big Dig. But uh, those dealers, they took, it was uh, millions and millions of dollars that, were, that they had to write off. And when he started making money, he paid all of them back. He didn't have to give him a dime and just quietly just did it. Yeah. But the mo- most interesting thing is that uh, I was um, 
up in northern Maine cross-country skiing. I ended up in this place and having a lunch. And quite by chance, I met this woman. Um, she's talking about different things. And she said, oh, you work with Walt. I said, yeah, I work with Walt. Um, she said, I know a guy at Guilford Mills who used to work with Walt. And I said, I don't you know. One guy at Guilford that was King County, this is after he passed away. And said so he was uh, a mentor. He was uh, legendary in the industry because of his honesty, you know, his, his character. And, uh, and she said, why do you say that about him? So I told her the story, how he paid all millions of dollars he paid back. She said, I didn't know that. I'm his daughter. Whoa. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> That's yeah. crazy. Yeah, it was, I thought it was crazy. <laughs> Yeah, that's great that she that you were able to tell her that. I, I, th I felt good yeah. about being able to tell her. I had no idea. I had no idea who she was. That's so special, and that's like such a cool little moment in time that you could share that piece of history to be to be like, "Hey, this is what actually happened," and yeah. then it creates more of a story, develops oh, yeah. more in a deeper I, understanding. I have to tell you the story because it uh, it's important. Yeah. 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 And I think a good way to do business as well. I think so too. Absolutely. Yeah. Because if you're going to go back and think about your customers, they want to know that you are an honest, hardworking individual and to show that you're going to give back the people that you took money from. Yeah. And helped you and, and yeah. really support the community around you. That's such a huge impact because our customers are our community. Our suppliers are our community. Mm. Right. Yeah. And I really think um, now more than ever, if like with how fast everything is kind of contracting, if, you know, if we can find customers that allow us to purchase from small businesses like you or a local farm that we can get wool from their flock and help them through the next year. If you know, we can really connect that supply chain and keep people in houses, owning farms, in business, putting food on the table, I think that's super important. And if we can't do it right now, maybe we can work something out where in the future, when we all start doing a little bit better again, we can throw something their way or your way, or we can do things like this that maybe help you guys keep and gain customers um you know some kind of like helping other businesses like come up together right yeah. that's why it's so great you're doing this podcast because we've been such a solitary pursuit it's great to have some you know make a community out of all these weavers in their mm. own little worlds yeah well thank you so much yes thank you, thank you. I learned so much about international textiles and how it impacts our domestic mills. It's wild how the global wool market has changed over the years. It really gives me some perspective on how we got where we are today. A special thank you again to our patrons. Your support means the world to us. Another thank you goes out to Rawhead the Recluse for providing music for our podcast. Find him at rawheadtherecluse.bandcamp.com. Don't forget to send your questions to hello at proweaverpod.com. 
If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe now. It will help us reach more weavers and people who are passionate about hand-created textiles. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Professional Weaver Society. And you can get full show notes at ProWeaverPod.com. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Professional Weaver Podcast. We look forward to sharing more episodes with you each Friday. Bye. Bye.